Well, please turn in your Bible over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, we're actually going to begin in Acts chapter 6, as we are continuing in our series verse by verse through 1 Timothy. God has given us a blueprint for the church. God has given us a plan how he wants the church to be, the local church. The local church is God's vehicle in the days in which we live to reaching the world for Christ. Everything else goes out from the local church. It's local church first, and then other ministries, they're okay as long as they're going out from the local church and But that local church is that hub. And you see that in Scripture, that when you look at God's plan on reaching the world, especially in places like Ephesians chapter 4, it's all based first and foremost on local church, and then it goes out from there. I say, what about internet ministry? Nothing wrong with that. We have that, okay? And all of that's important. But the local church is God's primary tool in reaching the world. And we are continuing in our series here in 1 Timothy, and I've entitled this today, Straight Talk About Leadership, Part 3. This will be the last part on church leadership that we'll be covering in detail. And it's an important one. Now, why would we spend three weeks on church leadership? Well, because as the leadership goes, so goes the church. One man years ago said, everything rises and falls on leadership. Well, that is a no place more true than in the local church. As we have seen so far in chapter 3, all of the requirements of church leadership have to do with character. It doesn't have to do with your job, where you work, your credentials from there. It doesn't have to do with how much money you have in the bank, how good-looking you are. It doesn't have to do with natural talents. It doesn't have to do with natural talents. It has to do with character. Godly, biblical, under the control of the Holy Spirit, character. It is the same for deacons, and we're going to talk about deacons today who take care of the physical needs of the church. Now, we see the concept of deacons first come up in Acts chapter 6. In the early church, when things were expanding rapidly, there were different needs. People needed food and to be taken care of, and it wasn't happening effectively. And so people came to the apostles and said, hey, this is falling through the cracks. I'm paraphrasing. Can you help us with this? And they said, yes, we have a solution for that. And then they went to the people, and here's what they said. Wherefore, brethren, Acts 6, 3, wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, what business was it? It was simply taking care of the physical needs of the church. But you see, God is serious about this. And he says, listen, even people who are taking care of the physical needs of the church, I want them to be godly men. I want them to be spiritual men. It's not an issue of, okay, what's left over? You guys take care of... No, no. God is serious about this. And it's important. Now, keep in mind, as I say these things, this is contrary to a lot of the thinking out there today. Remember, folks, what we're covering. It's not my opinion. This is the Word of God that we're looking at. God is the one who has put these things in order, who's given it to us in his eternal word that does not change. And so God is serious about this. 
Now he speaks to the deacons in 1 Timothy, actually speaking to Timothy about deacons, 1 Timothy 3 verse 8. He says, likewise must the deacons, likewise in what sense? He's covered the elders who are the spiritual leaders of the church, okay, the ones in charge of uh, preaching, teaching, and taking care of the spiritual needs. Now he's talking to those who will take care of the physical needs. Likewise must the deacons, now the word deacon, it simply means a servant. That's all it means is a servant. So if you want to be a deacon, that means you want to serve the Lord. Now, you know, believe it or not, there are people who say, well, I want to be a deacon, but really don't give me a bunch of responsibilities. (laughs) You're missing the whole meaning of the word, friend. It means you're basically saying, listen, I am willing to just simply serve in any capacity and help out to be a blessing to the church. Likewise, must the deacons be grave. Now, that doesn't mean dead. It means worthy of respect. We'll get to that. Not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for filthy lucre. Obviously, as with the elders, those who would be deacons need to be saved first because he's talking to the local church leadership and he's talking about now all these things are characteristics of those who are not only saved but living their lives for Christ these are character qualities as I mentioned it only makes sense that first you have to be saved okay you can't be a spiritual person if you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you if you don't have a new nature within And so they need to be saved. Now, what does that mean? The idea is saved from hell to heaven. You have to have been saved through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have to have put your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone as your savior. As it says over here in Ephesians chapter two, it tells us all about salvation. These are the verses that made sense to me. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, there are some things there. They're vague if you're not familiar with the verse and what it's talking about. But let me explain it, and then it'll make a little bit more sense. If I could just use an illustration, if this hand represents you and me, this wallet represents our sin. Here we are. We're all sinners. The Bible tells us God loves us. God hates our sin, but he loves us. You see, sin separates us from God. You can't get to heaven with any sin at all. So if you were to die with your sin, heaven is not even an issue. It's not a, well, you stand before God, he'll weigh your good with your bad and all that. That's all made up by religion. That's not in the Bible anywhere. You have to be sinless to get into heaven. Well, that leaves us all out because we're sinners, according to the Bible. And God says, if we die with our sin, we'll be lost forever, separated from God in hell. But God doesn't want that for us. Now, most religions, as I mentioned, believe that going to heaven is a matter of how you behave, not what you believe, but how you behave. Go to church every Sunday, give money. Maybe you're in a church and you're an elder or a deacon or whatever, and you think, well, that's going to help you get there, you know, or I got to read my Bible every day, give money, et cetera, et cetera. Turn from sin, try to get rid of your bad habits, have good habits. Certainly God will let you in. No, No, your sin has to be gone. No blocking, okay? Your sin has to be gone. And yet here's our predicament that we're in. So how are we going to get rid of our sin? Well, if we do it, we'll die with it and we'll be lost forever in hell. Suffering, the consequences of our sin, the wages of sin being death. God doesn't want that for us. God loves us. God loves us. He hates our sin. He loves us. And he loved us so much, he proved it 
by providing for us what it was impossible for us to provide for ourselves. He provided for us a death payment that would take care of our sin so that we would not have to pay for it. And that is what Jesus is all about, the great I am. This hand represents him, God in the flesh, the sinless son of God. He entered the human race, never stopping being God. He continued to be God, but he took on flesh, entered the human race. And when he went to the cross, the sin of your whole lifetime, he took it upon himself and he made the payment in your place so that you would not have to. He paid for your sin. He was buried and he rose from the grave. And the Bible tells us this. If you will believe, put your faith in Jesus Christ, that he made that payment for your sin. You're trusting in him as your payment for sin, as your way to heaven. He, that very moment, will give you everlasting life. He forgives you of all your sin. He gives you eternal life. He saves you by what the Bible calls his grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's not something we deserve or can earn. See, if you think you can earn your way to heaven by, you know, even following, people say today, I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ, okay? Do you think following Christ is going to get you to heaven? If you do, you're not going. Can I be so straightforward with you? If you think you have to follow Christ, live a Christian life to get to heaven, you are not going because you are depending on your own works as your way to heaven. You've got sin. Your sin's got to be taken care of, friend. But if you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you do, when you believe, all of your sin is taken away, and he gives you everlasting life. You notice it says, for by grace are you saved. By God's unmerited favor are you saved through faith, faith in Christ, what he did for you. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Gifts are free. It is the gift of God. Look at verse nine, just in case we don't get it. Not of works, lest any man should boast. We cannot earn our way to heaven. It's all been bought and paid for through Jesus Christ. And he's offering us eternal life as a gift. When we simply put our faith in him that he made that payment for us, he saves us by his unmerited, undeserved kindness and favor. What a wonderful thing that is, right? Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior if you have not done that yet. Now, once you have, you are a child of God, and now you can go on and you can live your life for Christ as a believer, which is bring great blessings and joy to your life. But here in the local church, you know, we know first and foremost that no one's going to have a place of leadership unless they're born again, because they can't lead in spiritual things if they're not born again. They're not born of the Spirit. And so the deacons, so here, let's break this down. Let's look at these very quickly. We'll just go through quickly. The deacon must be grave. Grave means worthy of respect, dignified, honorable, honest, somebody worthy of respect. Remember now, this is for a deacon. This isn't even for an elder, but elders should be that way too, obviously. But deacons, worthy of respect, dignified, honorable, honest. Secondly, not double-tongued. Okay? That means telling a different story. 
we would say that he speaks out of both sides of his mouth. You know, kind of like a congressman does many times. <laughs> not all of them, not all of them, but, but many. No, not double tongue. We would say that he speaks out of both sides of his mouth. He's, in other words, not a hypocrite. Not a hypocrite. He doesn't say in, in certain things when he's at church, and then out of church he talks a different way, uses different language and so forth. By the way, believers, listen, don't use vulgar terms or curse words. You're beyond that. You're a child of the king. Live and act with dignity, right? Let's do that. Not double tongue. I'd say, well, pastor, did, did you ever curse in your life? Yeah, before I was saved, I did. Absolutely, I did. I knew all those words and all that. But, you know, I look back now and I think, boy, is that ignorant. You can't use the right words, so you got to use vulgar words as adjectives and adverbs with every sentence that you say. Now, listen, maybe for somebody who's lost and ignorant, well, even for them, there's no reason for it. But for the child of God, come on, come on, man, we've got good things to talk about, right? Not gutter talk, good things. Not double tongue, though. He's not a hypocrite. Not a chameleon Christian. You know, you know what a chameleon is? The little lizards like down in Florida? You know, it's amazing. They are everywhere in Florida. That's where we grew up, around the uh, Miami, Hollywood area. They're everywhere in Florida, these chameleons. But I can remember years ago when in Crossroads Mall, we had a pet store there, and sometimes they would get chameleons in, and they were selling them for like a couple bucks, three, four bucks a piece. It's like, are you kidding me? These things run wild in Florida. But the chameleon, he gets on a green leaf, he turns green. He gets on a brown leaf, he turns brown. Depending on his environment, he changes his colors. Christians ought to be the same all the time. Not given to much wine. Now, for the elders, it says not given to wine, period. Verse 3, again, these should be qualities of life before they come into leadership. And by the way, the best advice when it comes to alcoholic beverages is just stay away from them, period. Listen, you'll never become an alcoholic if you never take your first drink. Did you know that? There's some deep truth in that. I'll say, well, I can handle it. I just won't. Once I start feeling buzzed, guess what? Once you start feeling buzzed, number one, how about this? Did God make you to feel buzzed? No, that's not how he made you. Let's think about how he wants our lives to be. And by the way, that's alcohol-free and drug-free. The best advice, just stay away from as we saw from Proverbs. Number four, not greedy for filthy lucre or money. Now, the deacons, this is interesting because the deacons were often involved in taking up collections for the poor. There would be an extra temptation, right? You're taking up collections. Well, if you're having a hard time meeting the needs at your house and for your family, maybe skim a little bit off the top and all that. No, if you're greedy for money, you should not be in any kind of church leadership. There always needs to be checks and balances in the area of finances, okay? In our church, no one ever counts the money by themselves. There's always at least one other person, if not two other people there, to count the money. No one in our church who gets a check for anything can sign their own check made out to themselves. Cannot be done. So in other words, if I needed a refund or something like that, I can't just go and sign my own check. That's a violation of policy, okay? You can see where that could end up, right? 
Not a good situation. You got to have checks and balances. Verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Now, we kind of really get in. This is an interesting portion of Scripture here. This is the fifth quality, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. It is interesting that this is written to those who would be deacons. These are not the preachers and the teachers, the elders in a church. These are deacons simply serving. But you notice what it says, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. The deacons are to be men of the word of God. The mystery of the faith is the truth of the faith embodied in the truths of the church age. I think this is what Paul was getting at here. The truths of the church age, they were a mystery not revealed until the proper time. Once the church age began... And a lot of that, of course, um, Paul, when he got saved, God revealed, started revealing the mysteries of the church age, things that no one had known before. And that's what we see in his epistles. And he revealed it a little bit, started revealing it to Peter in Acts chapter 10 with the, you know, the vision of the clean and unclean animals and all that, that there was this new thing coming made up of Jew and Gentile. These are all things having to do with the mystery of the church age, how the church age would be. In other words, it's talking about the truth of God's word, particularly for us today in the church. Deacons ought to be men of the word of God who understand these things, who live out these things. God is serious about this. It says holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. In other words, they can serve the Lord and live for Christ without being plagued by hypocrisy if they are living the truth out in their daily lives. These men are committed to the word of God. They know the word of God. They're living out the word of God and they can serve the Lord and faithfully fulfill their ministry with a pure conscience, knowing they have nothing to hide. They're not living hypocritical lives. You see, an honest person never has to remember what he said. Having a pure conscience. Easton's Bible Dictionary defines conscience as this. Now, this is very important. Listen carefully. Conscience, that faculty of the mind or inborn sense of right and wrong by which we judge of the moral character of human conduct. Now, that's kind of wordy. But let me say this, the conscience. We all have a conscience. I I was very aware of my conscience as a boy. I don't know if it's something that my, my mom instilled in us. She was very... My mom was a very black and white type person, okay? Something was either right or wrong. That's just the way she was. That's just the way she was. But you know, people say, well, just let your conscience be your guide. Well, that's usually a problem in the days in which we live. Why do you say that, Pastor? Because your conscience can get defiled and corrupted. The Bible talks about having a conscience seared with a hot iron to where we become insensitive to right and wrong. What used to bother us, and I've dealt with lots of believers over the years, and folks, this is a challenge to all of us. What used to bother you, you knew it was wrong at one point, but what used to bother you doesn't bother you anymore. Don't let your conscience be your guide. That's simply an indicator that your conscience is becoming insensitive to issues of right and wrong. This is dangerous because sin still brings forth death. Romans 6.21. But let me say this about conscience. A healthy conscience, and that's why he says a healthy conscience, not a corrupted conscience. 
A healthy conscience will always agree with the word of God. So if you want to do something and you know scriptures say no, but it doesn't bother you, what that tells you is that there's something wrong with you and you've probably violated the word of God many times in that one area of your life and it doesn't bother you anymore. That doesn't mean the Bible's wrong or your interpretation that you had was wrong. What it means is that now we're not as sensitive as we once were to these things. And that can be a real problem. Reminds me of the uh, story, the Internal Revenue Service received the following letter from a conscience-stricken taxpayer. Quote, Dear Sir, my conscience bothered me. Here is my $175, which I owe in back taxes. There was a PS at the bottom that read, If my conscience still bothers me, I'll send in the rest. (laughs) Well, not a good place to be nowadays, right? Where they're going to uh, give the IRS people firearms and everything else they're talking about that. Hopefully that won't happen. But uh, can you imagine? Your door gets broken down and they come in with guns. Uh, What's wrong? You missed your estimated payment by a day. Now that's an exaggeration. They'd at least give you a week, I would think. (laughs) What a crazy world we live in, right? Listen, folks, getting back to the point, your conscience is only a help if it agrees with the Word of God. Let's go back to our text, 1 Timothy 3, verse 10. It says, and let these also first be proved. Who? The deacons. Before they ever get into office, so to speak, Position, let them first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon, servant, being found, look at the word, blameless. Do you remember that from early on when it was talking to the elders? Notice they need to first be proved. How? By observation, right? How else are you going to prove them? You don't give them a test on paper. No, it's through observation. That means that they must be this way before they ever hold office. So as I talked about when we talked about the elders, it isn't that you say, okay, we like that guy. We're going to have him to be an elder. Somebody give me a list of the things he needs to do. Hey, bud, shape up. Here's what you need to do now. No, no, no. Those things are already there when they get the office. Because remember, these offices are places of leadership, And leadership in the local church should be followed. But they need to be godly, worthy men, worthy of being followed. They need to be grave. They need to be worthy of respect. God's serious about this. Now, if this applies to deacons, it certainly applies to elders as well. And by the way, remember, before a person is even a deacon, these qualities need to be in the life. So who are all these qualities, these characteristics in 1 Timothy 3 written to? They're written to all of us. Do we get it? All of us. These are godly characteristics that every Christian should have. And that's, you see in verse 10, blameless, blameless. That means no one can hurl an accusation at you, and that accusation sticks. Verse 11, even so must their wives 
Be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. So the deacon's wives now are mentioned. The first thing is grave. Again, worthy of respect. Secondly, not slanderers. That's an interesting word. It's from the Greek word diabolos. And it is the female version of the devil. Literally a she-devil, if you were to put it in English. A deacon's wife should not be a she-devil. It is the word used for Satan himself, not a malicious gossip, lying, trying to be destructive. Not someone who tells half-truths because half-truths are lies. Listen, half-truths are not half-lies. Half-truths are lies because they are deceiving. And when we deceive, we are lying. We're not telling the truth. Number three, sober means temperate. Self-controlled. As always, her role is a supportive role. Number four, faithful in all things. Now, it doesn't mean she's perfect, but it means she's trustworthy. Faithful means trustworthy and consistent, reliable. Now it turns back to deacons again in verse 12. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. Just for the sake of time, let me put this under one qualification or issue here. Number five, their family is in order. Their family is in order. He's the husband of one wife. His focus is his wife. He's not committing adultery in his heart. He's not committing adultery outwardly. He doesn't have more than one wife, as has been talked about in the past. And I agree, he is a one woman man. He's devoted to his wife and only his wife. And not only that, The children are in order. The children are not out of control. They're in order. They're respectful. It doesn't mean they're perfect. No child is perfect. No adult is perfect. But it means they're under control. They're obedient. They listen to their parents. They do what they say. And if they don't, then their parents properly take care of it. Parents, listen. Can I tell you this in church here? Or, you know, when we're together, whether in the service or out of the service, if your children act up okay and they do something wrong or they pitch a fit or they stomp their feet or, you know, they stick their tongue out at you, anything like that, you know, I say, oh, you know, I just can't believe they did this. Here's the thing. Just take care of it. They're little sinners. They're just little sinners. Take care of it. Now, if you, if you try to make it look like it's cute, you've got a problem. It's not cute. Rebellion's never cute. You just take care of it, that's all. They're in a training phase. Take care of it. Now, if they're 25, 26, and they're still doing that, you got a real problem. Stomping their feet, sticking their tongue out. Serious issues there. But their family is in order, verse 13. For they that have used the office of a deacon, a servant, well purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, the good degree here, I think it could be twofold. Could be either one, or maybe the whole concept is one big concept in the eyes of God. It could mean this. First, it could mean a good standing both in the church and out of the church. In other words, somebody who's godly and who's who's being a servant to their local church and to the people of that church, that is a good standing in both their church, the way the church sees them, and also the way their community sees them. They're an upstanding person. They're respectful, worthy of respect. They have the respect of others. 
This could be linked with the good report of verse 7. It is a good reputation. Proverbs 22, verse 1 says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. But secondly, it could also refer to future reward at the judgment seat of Christ. A good standing. See, what we do now as children of God will determine our reward in heaven and also in the kingdom age once we come back to earth at the second coming at the end of the tribulation period. Yeah, I know it was already mentioned, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 talks about the judgment seat of Christ. Only believers will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. It takes place in heaven after the rapture. But you notice what it says. It says, for we believers must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, if you're there, it takes place in heaven. So it's not an issue of are you going to heaven or hell? No, you're saved by grace here. Whenever you die, you go to heaven because ye have eternal life. But it says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, in the context of 1 Timothy chapter 3, when a man fulfills his ministry that the Lord has for him with honesty and integrity, it gives him the blessings that come from a good reputation. And as a result, boldness in serving the Lord. Now, listen, guys, listen, all of us, because it, it, this is good for all of us. If we are sold out to Jesus Christ as believers, we want to glorify Christ with our lives. We want to please him in every area of our life. If that is the direction of our life, if we're not living a double life, if we're not living in secret sin and all these kind of things, what does it do? Well, it gives us an openness. It gives us a boldness. Check me out. I've got nothing to hide. My passion is Christ. This is where my, my eyes are. This is where I want to live my life. That's the way it should be for every Christian. And if we're that way, we have nothing to hide. Therefore, we have nothing to be ashamed of. Therefore, that lends itself to us being even more bold with our faith. We ought to be like Paul, where he says in Philippians, for to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. It's what he cared about. And therefore, we know, you look at his life, he was bold for Christ. So fulfilling the ministry God has given us, living with honesty and integrity, will bring blessings into our lives now. It'll bring blessings and rewards to us when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And in the meantime, God will bless our lives with boldness to live our lives for Christ. So let me summarize this. Leadership in the local church if you haven't noticed, is serious business. It's serious business. If a church is going to be effective, it must have godly leadership. The leadership sets the example and the standard for the church. And everyone in the church should live out what is right. If the leadership is godly in character, then the leadership should be followed and obeyed. If the leadership is not godly in character, then they shouldn't be in leadership. So if they're in leadership, they should be godly in character. And if they are, they need to be followed and they need to be obeyed. They can be trusted. Why? Because they're godly. Because they're under the control of the Holy Spirit. 
See, you're either part of the solution or part of the problem. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. And I just love verse 15. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. He was writing so that they would know how to behave themselves or conduct themselves in the house of God. The word house, it's uh, oikos is the word. It can mean a house, but it can, and I think what it's referring to here is the family of God, the household of God, the church, the body of Christ. Here's what he's saying. Listen, I have told you all these things so that you all know how you ought to behave yourself. Doesn't that just sound like a parent to a kid? You need to behave yourself. Can I tell you this, folks? There are a lot of children of God today who are not behaving themselves. And they're living like total rebels, like they don't even belong to God. And that's a shame. And we wonder why the body of Christ is in the mess it is today. Well, because people aren't behaving themselves. Now, I'm not just talking about outward obedience or compliance. I'm talking about from the heart, serving Christ, loving the Lord, living for him like we should, being transparent, being real, both in and out of church, always the same, godly. It is referring to the church, the called out assembly, the family of God. There's a clear expectation here. I'd say, well, this all sounds like legalism to me. I believe in grace. Oh, that's what they say. But you're right. Amen. And I believe in grace. Okay. Okay. And if you believe in grace, let's see what grace teaches us about how we're supposed to live. Let's go over to uh, Titus chapter 2. See, God doesn't save us to live like we did before we were saved. I like what Dr. Curtis Hudson used to say. You don't get better to get saved. You get saved to get better. God wants to improve our lives once we're children of God. It's more than just getting fire insurance, which is awesome, which you get the moment you put your faith in Christ. No matter what you do after that, you're saved by the grace of God. You have eternal life. You're a child of God. Once you have it, you can't lose it. If you can lose your eternal life, it was never eternal to begin with. But those of us who have that great gift, Keith, you'll appreciate this. We met through a website, expreacherman.com, which was by Jack Weaver, who was my former pastor many years ago, and both my wife, Pastor Trout, as well, down in Miami. He used to say this. Now, he was a champion for the gospel. He was a champion for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone. But he used to say this. I couldn't agree more. For those of us who are saved, there ought to be a visible difference of the invisible difference. Not there will be or there must be, but there ought to be. It's a word should, right? There should be. And that agrees with Titus 2, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. Okay, grace teaches us. What does grace teach us? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, worldly desires, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly 
in this present world, looking for that blessed hope, the rapture, and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. That's our salvation. He wants us to affect our lives, how we live our lives. Now, again, while it is very important in the mind of God how his children live their lives, you do not go to heaven based on how you live your life. Once you're saved, it's important to God how we live our lives. But before we're saved, you don't go to heaven by the way you live your life. I hope we understand that. As I mentioned earlier, we are saved by faith alone and Jesus Christ alone is our payment for sin. And if you're in Titus chapter 2, jump over in chapter 3 with me in verse 5. Titus 3 and verse 5, it says this, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Mercy is us not getting what we deserve. We deserve hell. God is merciful, and he says, I will save you because of what my son did for you. I will have mercy on you and not send you to hell. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. How? Not by our good works, but by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration. Regeneration is being born again. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, look up here, here we are sinners. When we trust in Christ as Savior, we are washed, we are cleansed of our sin. All of our sin is washed away by the blood of Christ. And renewing of the Holy Spirit. We're born again. We become children of God the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Not based on works of righteousness, which we have done, not based on good works, but based on what God does for us through Jesus Christ. So I urge you today, friend, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that today you would trust him as your Savior. Today would be your day of salvation. God will give you eternal life. You're not promising anything. You're coming as a lost sinner, and we all are lost sinners, were at least at one point. You're coming as a lost sinner to God and saying, Lord, I understand I can't save myself. I'm helpless to get myself to heaven. I'm putting my faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for me to get me there. And if you'll do that, the moment you do, he gives you everlasting life. You're saved forever. Best news in all the world. And by the way, that gives me reason to live for Christ, to tell others. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.